Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 32 with Joseph Makos and Joseph Bievenu. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? There's some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. Well, uh, we're here in the studio on St. Claude again uh, for episode 32. Here we are. We got our good friend Bill Lavender in the studio with us tonight. Just to, I'm, I'm still, I'm still feeling the poetry, the 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 Mundial Poetico. I'm still feeling it. Are you still feeling the it? World like? Cup of poetry. The World Cup of poetry, yeah. as you called it. Pretty- yeah, so he gave it that name, you know, as uh, to parody the uh, the soccer mania. Oh, really? The, the he did that on purpose? Mania. He did yeah, that on that's, purpose? That's, that's where, yeah, that's where it comes from. That's hilarious. Yeah. <clears throat> Apparently the World Cup was there some years ago, and uh, the town went insane over it. And so he decided to name his poetry event. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, I'm still dreaming about it, and still, you know, I'm still... I'm still dreamy. Dreamy about the, the experience, but... Um, yeah, it's amazing how if you go down there and you you don't speak any or not much <laughs> Spanish, and you go to all these poetry events in there, half in half in Spanish and half in Portuguese, and one tenth in English, and it, it's amazing to me how little difference it makes. Like I still know what I like. I know the poets <laughs> I like. Yeah, yeah. And I know the poets I don't like. You know, it's. Uh, it's a pretty interesting experience, yeah. And I found that in the world of poetry and the and the the, the, the broad perspective of what poetry can be, we you kind of still have the same. I mean, there wasn't too much slam stuff. There was a little bit during the slam night, but you kind of had the same variety of work that you would get from any poetry commu- group of people. You had the fiery poets, and you had the quiet feminine voice, and you had the. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I'm saying, like you had the same broad perspective of 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 work and the way it was delivered. You know exactly. And I mean, it was it was really pretty easy to uh, to tell where everybody stood. You know, I mean, it was just from inflection and performance alone. It was easy to deduce a political stance and um, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I I I, I found myself thinking. When 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 when, uh, when we were there, I, when I, and and that thought came across my head as we would go through these readings, and there'd be so many seven readers, each reading for ten minutes, you know, and you would get this variety, and I kept thinking to myself, like, is that just a natural categorization that people like the that language falls into as far as poetry, or is it like, are they working through their own tradition, or are they picking anything up from the American tradition? Well, that's a good question. Right? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think they are. a complicating question. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I think, you know, I think there is such a thing as world poetry, you know, as mundial poetico, and that they feed off of each other, and there's enough translation going on now that, um, that it gets around. And also, you know, the United States is, you know, the... It's just about the only country in the world where most people aren't at least bilingual. True. I mean, yeah. everybody yeah, in Europe speaks at least two languages, and some of them speak four and five, you know. And, and it's pretty much true in South America, too. You know, like most of the people we ran into 
spoke some English and were interested in having our books in English and uh, well, I mean I, don't, I mean I can't speak for for down there necessarily but I mean I know at least I've seen statistics before about Europe compared to America and the amount of things sold in a bookstore in America that are not from America is remarkably small compared to pretty much any other bookstore in the world right there they're a lot more reading things from all over the world rather than just from their own country. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, the United States is the most uh, the most linguistically insular of of the nations. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, everybody just assumes that, you know, everybody speaks English. Yeah. To a certain extent, everybody does. You know, I mean, it is the language. Let's say every every airline pilot has to speak English because that's the universal language of their communications and and things like that. And but I mean, even outside of of the the language issue, I think there's just a parochialism to American literature in a certain way. Like how much English literature that's not in the U.S. really. Not, even English literature that's not from the U.S. Yeah, like British, like, like contemporary <laughs> British work. Yeah, it, it's, uh, some of that gets around, but, it, I, you know, I find, like, especially in the novel, like the British novel right now is way more interesting than the American novel in the aggregate. Yeah, yeah. To me, anyway. And I would think to any poet. <clears throat> Seems like the American novel is... But you got to search it out, right? Like, you can't... You're not going to just walk into a bookstore as if anyone buys books of it anymore. Yeah. Anyway, but even those of us who are, you can't just walk into a bookstore and find those things in a way that I think you can in other countries, right? Like there's... Yeah, that, you know. that's right. You know, and I mean, the, the, the percentage of stuff that's sold in bookstores here that is not literary... But is you know um, cookbooks, guidebooks, and uh, things of that ilk. I think is much higher than it is any any anywhere else I've been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess there was a time when the American novel was the cutting edge thing, right? I guess that's a hundred years ago, <laughs> or there maybe seventy years ago. It's like, well, American. I don't know. I mean, I mean there have been there have been some great American novels. You know, there have been, but um, but it's also been the hot. I mean, America is the the inventor of the genre, you know, of genre fiction. Literary we, fiction kind of peaked in the seventies, right? Like, that's like that was like. I mean, I don't know if it peaked, but that was like the. It has declined since the seventies. Literary fiction, right? For that reason, right? Because I think things that make the best bestseller lists are not literary fiction anymore so much. It is more genre stuff or. Yeah. I mean, in fact, if it's, you know, I mean, fiction. try and <laughs> try and sell a literary novel. I mean, I, I went through a few, I've written a couple of novels now and I, I went through a diluted period where I thought I would actually like maybe find an agent and so I inquired with several of them, and most of them overtly told me, oh, we don't do literary. Uh, <laughs> or the, the literary stuff, that's a really hard sell. You know, it's... Uh, but then know, in the think. 70s, you had people, you had, like, Stanley Elkin and things on late-night talk shows. 
yeah, right. talking about their novels, yeah. right? Where it's uh-huh. like that's unimaginable now. <laughs> no, they be yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the Tonight Show I mean, people talking like, about uh, people yeah. like Vonnegut, and uh, I mean, the best novelists back then were truly literary, and uh, I mean, I, you know, their their novels were were pretty interesting. So you're working on <clears throat> you're working on a few you're working on another one. It looks like a bunch of stuff. I am working <laughs> on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I've been working on. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know how how it is. We got started talking about novels, but I've been um, I've been immersed in writing novels for the past several years, and haven't written very much poetry. And now I'm uh, I'm trying to. Uh, get away from that and move back to poetry. But I wrote three novels that, um, actually they're kind of novellas. They're about 25, 30,000 words each. And, um, my goal is to release those as one trilogy and just kind of get them off my desk and be done with those things. They're, uh, they're a lot of work and they're really, uh, they can really obsess you if you look at them with a poet's eye and really start to think about the <laughs> language, you know? And where, yeah, where do you think, I mean, for you, where do you, where did the shift happen? Where do you, where does it come from? Like the idea that you, you know, you focused on these novels, like, you know. I guess I just always wanted to prove that I could do it. And that uh, because deep down, I, I always thought, wow, the long form really is, you know, that, that really is the king. And, um, <laughs> you know, if I could, if I could handle that, I could handle anything. And I've studied the novel a lot. I, I like novels. I, I like good novels. And, um, and I kind of wanted to write one that wasn't in the, in the vein of, uh, of what the American novel is right now in the aggregate. But um, <clears throat> it's interesting, you know, I, one thing I noticed immediately was that whereas in my poetry I seek to, let's say, avoid cliches, in the novel I embrace them. Uh, I embrace the conventions of the novel, and so it becomes a kind of parody and so in the first one, I was, I played with conventions of like the 18th century novel, the picaresque and, um, so you mean more, do you mean in like what happens in them or, or, or in the language? No, I mean in the language. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not, not to the extent that say John Barth did. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, not, yeah. Not like the sawweed <laughs> factor, but, um. But the first one, which is called Q, you know, I, I wanted to write a neo-picaresque, and I studied picaresques, which come in all different flavors, you know, it's Don Quixote, and, um, but then there's also Voltaire's Candide, and, uh, and so I based it on both of those, and I, uh, it's kind of a, kind of a paste-up novel. I stole a lot of things from him. I stole the introduction from Quixote and simply uh, re-modernized it just slightly, really. Yeah. <clears throat> I stole the opening of uh, Candide 
So those are done. Are those novels done? I'm about um, a day away from finishing the third one. Okay. Yeah. And do you put them through a strenuous? Uh, you got like a strenuous very, reader. Very strenuous editing process. Well, now what's going to, have to happen is now that I've decided that they're all going to be one volume, I'm going to have to go back like to the first one to cue and kind of make sure it syncs up with the last one. Okay. And um and it's just going to be one Yeah, one uh say 100,000 word <laughs> uh piece, a trilogy, three novellas called the Letter Trilogy, Q, Little A, and The Private Eye. Nice. The Private Eye is a detective novel. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the third? Mm-hmm. But it brings us back to Q? Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, Q is the hero in all of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so image work is like, this is, um, this is the very beginning of a, of what will be a very long project. It's kind of um, has to do with identity. The history of photography I suddenly got very interested in because it um, suddenly occurred to me, I was just thinking about it, and it occurred to me that certain things changed once the photograph was invented. And so this is a, um, I'm just going to read you a piece from that. Yeah, yeah. I think the form it's going to take are these poems interspersed with these little short essay-type things. I'm just going to read you these two pieces about photography. The first little bit is called Image of Death. Initially, the most common use of photographic process was to record images of the newly dead. Corpses were dressed in formal wear, propped and tied into chairs, and their images burned onto plates of silver-plated copper or glass. As if it were necessary for the medium to reach as far back as it could, to incorporate as much of the temporal world as possible into the new form history was about to take. The dead, too, were ideal subjects for experimentation with the early processes, which were often laborious and time-consuming. In the last hours before the bodies decay, last moments when the subjects still resemble themselves, they hold their poses faithfully and do not trouble the photographer engrossed in his mechanism by fidgeting. As the focus of the medium began to turn toward live portraiture, the same technology used to secure the dead into lifelike postures was applied to the vital subjects. They too were tied to posts and chairs. T-shaped rods were run up the spine and along the shoulders, beneath the jackets and formal gowns, crucifying the bourgeois with long exposures, during which even breathing was prohibited causing most of them, in fact, to resemble the dead. And then this thing, called Birth of the Smile. Prior to the invention of photography, the smile is virtually unknown in the history of graphic representation. 
and all the vast archive of images produced by the hands of human beings, from cave drawings to ancient clay figurines to Egyptian tomb paintings, from classical Greek sculpture and relief through the monastic friezes of the Middle Ages, from Chinese to Norse to Eskimo to indigenous American or pre-Columbian art, you'll be hard-pressed to find a single example of a smile. In the history of European portraiture, in all those museums full of all those heads of kings and queens and jesters and pale princesses by Titian or Van Eyck or Raphael or Da Vinci or Velasquez or Rembrandt or any of their myriad apprentices, you might detect half a dozen instances of what we now call a smile. And the ones you do find will more resemble what we would classify as a smirk. Why was it that no portrait artist ever thought to suggest their models smile for the painting while smile for the camera became an overnight cliché? Did the curl of the lip and exposure of the teeth present a technical challenge? Or, like the foot placement of a galloping horse, were the smiles available for observation too fleet to be captured by the clumsy brush? Did the early photographers, like Muybridge, render visible a phenomenon heretofore undetected by the naked eye? Or perhaps the close-lipped sobriety of the European royal portrait had as much to do with the discomfort of holding a pose for the long hours it took the painter to brand it onto history as it did with the regal demeanor of the subject? Or was the world simply a more sober place back then, not nearly as gay and optimistic as technological innovations have rendered our own. Hmm. Yeah, I like that one, smiling. That's interesting. I never thought about that, actually, yeah. Yeah, it just occurred to me that smile did not exist uh, before uh, before the camera. You look at the history of art and you won't... See, a tooth, you can't a find to- a toothy, a toothy smile. Absolutely, I mean, what we call a Hollywood smile, no. especially, absolutely non-existent. Wow. <clears throat> but yeah, it is weird, right? I mean, yeah, it does seem like yeah, you can explain part of that away with the posing aspect. It would be difficult. You can't keep a smile for that long in the same. But then you'd still think not everyone is painting directly from life, you'd think someone would have... Right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's fascinating, actually. It is fascinating. It's like, so with the invention of the camera, it seems to me like this whole new conception of the self and of identity came into being. Now, now I can, I can relate to this because in the in the newspaper archive, right... I've specifically looked for the earliest photography uh-huh. in the newspapers right. as far as like a, 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 a u- the use of um, photography tech, photographic techniques. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think I read a history book put up by the Times-Picune and they actually, I think they misidentify the first photograph because here's why. The first photograph ever in a newspaper for the Picune is the Ursuline Convent Yard. Okay. Okay. An outdoor scene, a pose scene around 1900, definitely a tripod shot. It's an outdoor daylight shot of the yard, okay? 
relatively easy to do with a tripod and a large format <laughs> camera. Yeah. Right? Right. Well, it's probably a two minute exposure. Two minute exposure. Like yeah. yeah. But but relatively simple. Mm-hmm. The first portrait of a person in the Picayune is the director of the French Opera House, who would have been, in 1900, probably the number one cultural icon of the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. You think, yeah. think of the guy who's the director of the Opera House. I mean, that's like the, the center of culture, performative culture in New Orleans at that time. So that guy was in the papers the first thing, but he's a, it's a portrait. Now, we have portraiture that goes back 50 years, even early. We have portraits... We have portraiture that goes back to 1830s or 1840s, right? Mm-hmm. So we have this. But they miss... Here's the funny thing. So I'm looking at all this time period, 1890s, 1900s, and I think they misidentified the first photograph, because here's why. I think that they used photograph in the dark room to photograph paintings. Uh, okay. So I see some stuff that's earlier than that, that I think that maybe they mis- they, they didn't think about, like, oh, well... When they're thinking of a photo, they're thinking of a scene or a person. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're not yeah. saying like, oh, we photographed this painting for use in the Which newspaper. would make sense. That'd be easier with earlier technology. Because you can tell it's not an etching yeah. of, the photo, of, of that painting. You can tell it's a photograph of a painting. You know? Yeah. So like we had still lifes. We had, or not still lifes, but we had copy technology te- technology. But yeah, that's a funny thing with like the long time those exposures took with that early technology. And and in the, the part you had about the, the, the death thing, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole, that was a big, like strange, almost antique forgery market that happened where they would take later photos where it was people with just stands and try to claim that it was photographs of people who were dead because they knew they could sell them for more money. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it was like one of the... I mean, it was maybe the... I don't know if you've read um, Josh Clark's uh, Yellow Jack. No. It's great. It's a great book. But it's... He conjectures that a uh, an apprentice of Daugur's steals the technology and comes to New Orleans in the 1830s. And sets up a daguerreotype shop no in way. the French Quarter. Really? Okay. I don't think it's historically true, but <laughs> I, I, I don't even know. But, I mean, he, he says it's a work of fiction, and so it's just a conjecture. But that was, I mean, one of the first things they did with daguerreotypes was record the dead. It's like the last image of the person, you know, before, they de- before the body decays... To capture that image, and um, actually, I have, a, uh, I have a piece about that too. Let me read that one. Well, the other thing I was gonna I was gonna say about uh, the fo- fo- photography of that time when photo became po- when photo became a populous, accessible thing because uh-huh. it wasn't really a popular. It was only like you had to go to a studio, and that's where the photograph was. And right, yeah. And expensive. They and they difficult. did they did they did they did the um, RFPs, real photo postcards. Uh, so yeah, yeah. people would get their photos developed. Yeah. And it would be on a paper uh, that was a postcard. Right, and they would print the postcard stuff. But on it the back, yeah. but so when when I'm doing material culture research on historic New Orleans images, when you see an RFP, that's probably the only copy of that image. 
because because some companies would have issued like oh okay this is a there's a hundred of these for like a company that wanted to put out a picture of Carnival. Well, there wasn't originally any any way to reproduce them. After, I mean, it's yeah. Well, yeah I mean, but by that of, time you're printing it on paper, that's pretty late. Yeah. You're out of the tin type and all of that stuff. Yeah, but, but I'm saying, yeah. so I'm saying, like people would get their photos developed as these postcard photos, yeah, and they would right. just send it home. Yeah. yeah, and those were the only copies. And they were probably exposed positives. I mean, the, the use of the negative really didn't. I mean, that was later. Some, yeah. Yeah. Well, because if you're not going to reproduce it, yeah, you don't need the negative, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it never. A, you know, it, it took a while for the the idea of the negative to to even hit. I mean, it's a pretty pretty strange idea, really. You know. Yeah, but how, you didn't how they came up with it, I'll, I'll never know. But like, when well, you, when no, you I think photos, that's about being able to 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 print it multiple times, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, sure they yeah. wanted they wanted that. I mean, reproducibility yeah. was you know. Added added value to it. Yeah, like when when did when did the idea of getting your photos back with the with the negatives in it like when did that come into popular culture? Like that's interesting to think about. Like you get the you know you get your photo pack you know and you get the negatives in it and the photo positives prints. Well, yeah, but I mean it was amazing, right? Because then you could just then you could just take it somewhere else and you have them reprinted again. Totally, I know, but I'm saying like when people back in the day when people would shoot film. They wouldn't get their negatives back. I, I, I'm curious. Would they get their negatives back? Well, their... because you needed some. Oh, by the literally... time by the time people were taking pictures, yes, then, like the yeah. masses were taking pictures, the negative had been invented. Yeah, so that like was like when, the, um, 1900. When Mendes um, did that, the Dogs of My Life book that I edited back when I was at UNO, he, he was he, those. Um, Photos from around the turn of the century were found in an attic on glass uh, yeah, negatives. Glass plate glass negatives. Yeah. Ne- glass plate negatives. So this wasn't something, I mean, like, people weren't walking around with brownies, you know. I mean, he... No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah of course Yeah, not. he had to carry a big rig with a bellows and, um, and a tripod and... Um, I believe that he actually used a dry process, but initially they were wet. And so you literally kind of had to make the negative on the spot. You had to have chemicals dip dip the glass into the stuff and then expose it. But in the earlier cameras, the material that it was, the photo was being... They were direct. Created on it was directly on there. It yeah, wasn't it was like direct, you weren't, direct you weren't, positives. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I like the the daguerreotype was that was the first time. I mean, this was the the first photographic process, and this was a piece of uh, silver plated copper treated with uh, mercury. Which killed a lot of them. Actually, the early uh, daguerreotypists, they died of mercury poisoning. Um, it's treated with mercury and then put behind the lens, exposed, and it just creates a positive. There's no way to reproduce this at all, and it's very, very fragile. <clears throat> it um, it had to be covered with glass to protect it because you couldn't even you touched it touch with your it, finger, it, would it start, was ruined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were also, they were kind of like um, contemporary wiggle pictures. 
because the view would change as you moved. You, you change the angle of your view. Ah, yeah, yeah. So they would, they would kind of come in and out of view. <laughs> I don't understand the, the technology behind that. But let me, yeah, since, you found the one, yeah. Since we're on this weird uh, topic, let me read this other one <clears throat> that goes in this sequence. This is more of a poem. It's called Father Image. That last one I read was called The Birth of the Smile. It's called Father Image. In sincere homage with true and unrehearsed grief, a daguerreotype, its remarkably fragile surface protected by a sheet of glass, and the whole assembly knocked into a small but still ornate wooden frame, is placed on the mantel in the sumptuous drawing room of a townhouse in Paris or London or Brussels or New York. Above it hangs a portrait from the previous generation, a painting of the deceased's father, each wrinkle and lash marked by an actual hand, not the most skilled hand, but the best the family could without extravagance afford. Flesh colored a bit brightly as if with an excess of rouge, facial angles a bit rigid, lacking the flow and softness a master could have given, yet perfectly recognizable as the beloved, perhaps too strong a word, grand pair, whose fabled mercantile adventures had paid for the place and the portrait, even for his son's portrait below him. His own visage towering in overdramatic and life-sized color, his sons in drab gray, the size of a large coin, refracted in such a way that when the viewer changes stance, it disappears. The old man hangs over his son with crude omnipotence, lording sheer size over the molecular level detail of the tiny badge below him. Yet it is the newly dead son diminutive but hypnotic technological wonder who captures the grieving children's attention with a mirror flash as they seat themselves for the reading of the will. <laughs> so this is kind of the direction I'm going, you know, it's this whole, uh, the, the notion of class and um, how image reproduction worked in the social structure of the 19th century and then how it came to, um, to function in the 20th century with the birth of Hollywood. And, uh, this is a long project. I but I liked, yeah, if you, yeah, I liked the one I liked too, cause I was going to ask that. I mean, I liked, and I don't know that that's going to, when you, when you finish this project, that, that's still going to be the first piece, but I liked the one that was kind of your personal, recollection of this idea of having an ID. Oh, yeah, that is, that that is going to be the first your, piece. Because, I mean, that's, life, that's, really, that's really what I'm after is ID, the ID. You know, that's because that's what ultimately comes with it is the beginning of uh, identification. I mean, if you, I mean... It's the beginning of the passport, for example. Sure. You know, it's the beginning of... Uh, numerical identification, you know. Which is also interesting because that's almost inconceivable, I'm sure, when that technology began, that that's where it was going to end up. Well, 
if you read my little chapbook, La Police, you will see that, I mean, one of the very, right after photographing the dead, the most popular use of early photographer was early photography was by the police. Okay. And they used it for two things to record themselves. Uh, with these great kind of troop pictures. There's lots of those from the 19th century and also for the mugshot. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like if you're trying to identify criminals, to have a, a visual record of what they look like is kind of useful. Well, Bert, but, the, yeah. the photography and criminality are born at the same moment. Yeah. Okay. Before that, there really wasn't this conception of criminality. I mean, you have to have this concept of identity in order for criminality to exist. Otherwise, it's just people doing things and trying to survive. Right, like this right here, right? This is 1910. <laughs> these yeah, people, uh-huh. right? These are their mugshots. Right. I mean, this yeah. is the idea behind this piece, right? Is like the Canal Street stores prepare for Christmas. Well, Christmas. yeah, but you have people doing that stuff, but I guess it just changes your conception of how you look at it once you have an ability to document it. It's strange, though. But then, when you think of IDs, that's almost a whole other level, right? Because it's it's not even related to just someone being criminal or not. It's almost like you need it's, this to be merely, legitimate in yeah, some the, way or the something. The identification yeah. card is merely the mugshot refined, you know, set to a, a larger purpose. You know, so you don't you don't just take mugshots of the murderers. I mean, gradually, the technology becomes cheaper, so you start to take mug shots of um, everybody, shoplifters, and you know, then you know who has the right to be in the factory or on the dock at a certain hour. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The idea is the ID card, and um, it's yeah, all, all yeah. related to the notion of uh, well, it's some kind of like yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's not related to criminality, but it is like, but it's kind, but it's very, it's kind of enslaving in some way, right? Because you need it to be able to exist as a legitimate, legitimate member of society or something, right? Like you're not considered well, legitimate. Well, that whole concept of yeah. what a legitimate member of society is is created by this. You know, it's created by this structure that begins to yeah. grow out yeah. of. It's not just the camera, but the camera is, like, a very important part of it, and it determines, like, the form it's going to take. Well, it Um, seems like it would have been amazing to be a criminal before a camera, because then you could just, like, write a thing on a card and be like, I'm this guy. Well, okay, a note note on this. A note on this is uh, I was – in my my Dada research, um, I was reading about Emmy Emmy Hennings and Hugo Ball. And so she, so she was like a, uh, a really, really refined artist and they had worked in print, a print shop. So she forged their passports to get them into Switzerland. Like, like, like that idea of being an artist and crafting a fake right. documents. Mm-hmm. That's so, just to think about that is so interesting. And yeah, that you could actually do it with pen and ink. With pen yeah. and ink, you know, and. Uh, as late as, you know, as late as World War II. You know, I mean, there was still 
it was more difficult by then, but I mean, there were lots of, uh, there was a big industry in forged papers, uh, with the Jews trying to get out of Germany and, uh, well, right. Wasn't that a whole big part of, uh, Edith PF's defense was she claimed she was her, all her visits to Germany that she was taking smuggled documents to get Jews out of Germany, but it probably wasn't uh, true. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that well, that because she got into all kinds of trouble because people were like, "Are you a German sympathizer?" Because of all the visit, visits she was making to Germany uh, uh, during during you know uh, while Parasite was occupied, right? Yeah. But that was her defense: was, "Oh no, I was actually taking forged documents to Jews who were in Germany so they could get out." Wow! But but the, I don't know if it's true. The other film related data <laughs> thing that I wanted to bring up was um. They, uh, Schwitters hid, he hid microfilm, super small film, Mm -hmm. embedded in his artwork portfolios. Like, he would cut open parts of his, like, his... Just for the heck of it, or what was the No, 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 (laughs) Actually, actually, like, spy stuff. Oh, The Yannas were, like, like, Zara was a little bit involved with the counterintelligence. And they were like they were contacted, and I, there's no, there's there's a little bit of information about it, but but it's this claims, but that Schwitters were, were would take his collages and slice open certain parts of them and like huh. hide little film yeah. inside of his collages and paint over it and glue over it, so that Weird. yeah yeah so that it was like in his work, and then when he would get over the border, he would cut it open again and pull it out and give it to whoever needed to be given to. So like something that was pretty inconceivable. Like when he left, yeah, before century. that technology yeah, existed. When he left couldn't. Germany for good, for Paris for good, to go to England, he had smuggled all this, all this microfilm in supposedly, or all this film in, like in his in his art portfolios. There's all these like secret co- secret films. So the other thing it, it creates the the image culture is what I'm starting to call it the image in my culture. head is it creates, like, the modern notion of intelligence. It creates, um, you know, the um, this kind of hoarding and uh, controlling of the flow of information. Yeah, as, certainly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that other thing about that is, do you know who the movers and shakers behind microfilm technology Mm-mm. was the CIA? Well, that makes sense. And this because because the CIA were, were they were they were trying to have a central access point for all human data. They were, and they were trying to create right. the they were trying to create yeah. the internet before the internet was possible. Yeah, because they wanted to have a play so a way to concept, dive. Yeah, I mean the concept was there long but long before the internet came, but the internet just uh, you know, expanded it a, a thousandfold. They wanted the system where they could just dial up and say, like, oh, we want to pull, you know, from 1923, this newspaper in the city, and it would just, you know, a stream of, you know, whatever, how it would work, a stream of, you know, you know, microfilm would go through, and then it would find the date, and then it would send it over, you know. But they were trying to do this single access point for all data, which is just insane to think about. Yeah, that that was the point behind you know 
microfilm. Well, I mean, I guess, yes, but it kind of makes sense, right? Condensing an entire history that would fit in this room. I mean, you think of like in one cap. I mean, it, yeah. To now, now it seems kind of absurd in some way, but if you think of like what it would be like that, on the one hand, you have this giant volume, and then you can suddenly reduce it to something that you can hold in your hand. Or dial up on a machine. Yeah, well, but that's what I'm saying, right? Like, the film that would be, you know, you could take oh, the yeah, OED and have a big. film that's, yeah. you know, a thing that you can hold in one hand, which is crazy. I mean, now it's, like, more to an extreme degree, but you can but see all, that you know, it yeah. all had to, um, had to kind of coalesce together. Because not only was the technology not available to do this in the 18th century, but no one would have had any use for it. Well, know? that's a big part of it, right? Like, yeah. Because, because <laughs> like, the idea of, like, giant room-sized camera, camera obscuras existed far before people started doing photographs, right? But but they just, but it just seemed impractical, was, and yeah, what would you do with a, it, a, right? A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It was like figuring out how would this be useful. I mean, it is interesting that the CIA uh, developed microfilm technology because it's, I mean, my premise is that all of camera technology started with law enforcement and, you know, (laughs) the, the gradually uh, increasing level of surveillance that was um, becoming the norm beginning in about 1800. Well, it kind of lends some credence to the idea that the more popular something is, the more wary you should be of it, because it kind of gives you the thought that the only reason things get that popular is if it can be used in some nefarious way. I, I, uh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's... (laughs) That I was I was I was recently touching on this um this uh, history of film in Louisiana and Louisiana was go ground zero for cinematography and movies right we had the Vidascope Hall on Canal Street right. in the eighteen nineties mm-hmm. um, but the first time a movie was shown in New Orleans or in Louisiana was at the West End in the same year or the year before and they had they had to, they had to, they had a te- they had to hook into the train tracks to splice the power. To run the cameras, the projectors. Weird. And they had to run oh, the co- wow. they had to run the cords through barrels of water to change the voltage. What? No, it's true. This is <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, documented An improvised transformer. Yeah, inter- oh, improvised transformer. Crazy. And they had it because it was half the current needed for the machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the lot, then the lines were too powerful, right? So the so they had to split. So they showed these movies at West End, and down by you know which would have been like you know the old little ta- little. T- town West End that everyone went to, which mm-hmm. would have been in Bucktown. Bucktown, yeah, yeah, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Or it was like a, yeah. a, on the yeah. ri- on the river there, right? Or on the on the bayou? What, was it on the bayou? I think it was on the bayou. Or... West End's on the lake. It was on the lake, yeah. Okay, so, um, but uh, what was it? Um, when when the Lumiere brothers invented the first mobile video camera to record, yeah, the... Lumiere, Lumiere, yeah. Lumiere, Lumiere. Yeah, when they when they and they would and they would send these. Um, uh, Edison was. Such, a, you're talking about a film film, film, cam, camera. film camera. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So like uh, so so um, Edison was just like such a bastard, you know, because he would buy up everyone's technology and rebrand it for his own. 
he sent these guys. He sent. He would had stooges following them from France, and as soon like, or, or they would wait for them when they came to America, and he would have people shoot their cameras, like literally, shoot them with a gun, put a bullet through their camera, so that they couldn't. But then, I mean, it was just like he was setting these assassins. He wasn't trying to kill the people. Oh, he's just killing the cameras. He was just trying to kill the cameras. <laughs> and he had sent these, like, he's and there's all these weird. documented things where, like, where, like... Wait, so I'm confused. So did this happen with these people who were showing this movie? I'm, I'm, I just I jumped, I jumped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story. <laughs> um, I jumped, I jumped. But, but no, it was like, it was like one of these things where, like, uh, the Vitaphone... Um, well, Edison tried to co-op that, too. He tried to co-op the uh, thing... And it was, um, uh, I was going uh, to, that was a side note about shooting the cameras. But the reason I was telling, <laughs> the reason I was telling you this story was because um, they showed these movies on Canal Street and they were 60 second films. Yeah. And they were just so simple. It was like, it was like the same stuff that the Moya Bridge was doing where it was just like a woman mopping the floor or the horse running or whatever it was. Right. It was one little motion or thing, mm-hmm. right? But they'd show these 60 second things. And one of the most controversial things that happened about it was they showed this movie called The Kiss. Do you know uh, about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. it's just like this guy kissing this, this woman. And it's just like they're just looking at each other. And it's just like 30 seconds of them just like smiling and looking at each other. And then, uh, and then, they, and then he kisses her. But it was like scandalous. It was like the papers wrote about it. And it was like, oh, you cannot, absolutely cannot show that. <laughs> To the public, like it was by appointment only kind of type thing, you know. But it was like, like that idea kind of. It, it's just interesting because it the voyeurism plays into it there too. Yeah, the security it plays into it, but this idea of like this private moment that became a controversy about just one kiss on film, yeah. and how that was like a controversial, super controversial thing. I wonder if this smile was viewed as sort of pornographic. In um, in the early ages, you know, maybe yeah. it was um, maybe well, there was yeah. a feeling that the smile was lascivious and uh, you know, kind of in, along that along that same line. <laughs> I mean, you don't see any images of kissing either. Occurs to me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, or they're very rare. <clears throat> probably, I bet my guess would be probably the main images you would see of kissing would be biblical. I can't think of one. Right. But, yeah. No, there's probably not many. or something, or... um, Yeah, no, even in Greek art, I don't really... I can't think of kisses. You know, I don't think that really gets shown. I was thinking that the whole point of the, the... Or the... The not showing the teeth was just bad. It was just the... It was just hygiene. But it can't be just that. People did have bad teeth. Yeah, know. people had bad teeth. But I, but I was just thinking, it, it can't I be just... Article, I read an article by a, about a, a, a book review that a dental historian had written about the influence of photography on the history of, of dentistry. Absolutely. And that, it, that Hollywood was the big shot in the arm for dentistry because <clears throat> you had to have those big toothy smiles and um, so they begin to work on teeth um, so that's an interesting project but I did I did hope you could tell us a little bit about your writer's retreat 
project too. Yeah, that piece. Um, uh, gosh, it's really hard to say anything about it. <laughs> it really is. Um, so, I mean, to me, my impression of what you sent sent us on that was. It's, you know, I mean, obviously it's kind of like about the act of writing, but it's almost like aphoristic, which, you know, it it's, is um, yeah. yeah. I like aphorisms. Yeah. I like little, little contradictions, you know, that, um, sort of show the limit of language. And I guess... I've never actually been on a writer's retreat when I, when I wrote this. <laughs> I was contemplating going on one. Okay. okay. Oh, really? <laughs> and so it occurred to me, what I was really thinking about was why, why does one do it? You know? And, um, you know, so it occurred to me that it's, uh, you know, you do it because... You're trying to kind of, or you're trying to come to terms with death, ultimately. <laughs> you know, locking yourself away, and um, anyway, that's that's. So it's like I better hurry up and write something before I die. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, it's, it's not only that, but um, um. Should, should I just read for a while in it? There's really no, yeah, place, read, read no, no place to start or finish. I like the one about people saying they're a master writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let me find that part. And these are just uh, short aphorisms that are um, separated by plus signs. And they're completely unrelated to each other. Though not really. Though they sound like they are. So let's start here. Procedural writing. Writing according to rules. Feels like a narrowing down. But taking decisions away from the unconscious actually widens the field. And next one. Language one. The self alone with God, or nothingness. The space of prayer from inner depths, the soul. Language two. Self absolutely social, intersubjective, populated by others, pure mimicry, automism. Beating time to being, for the time being being that grand importance of heritage blood it is a text that teaches us this united we stand but to stand is to stand against division creates unity total division if such individualism can even be imagined would be total unity. It is as if the letters themselves might vie with death, infect it from the inside, and kill it. 
Is there anything more hideous than a Hollywood smile? And now it is every smile. The dream is a rebus. Picture me there. Pay what you owe. These delicate ways of wording are of no benefit in speech. Rhetoric is stand-in for the body. Plato sees the psychology of the individual reflected in the politics of the city. Thus, the symposium, if you haven't noticed, is an orgy. Recording, in a manner of speaking, the vast difference between the halting oral presentation and the yet-to-come fluidity of the writing. People who are always upbeat and happy aren't. Quintilian and Cicero imagine they are prescribing strategies for verbal combat but in fact, they chant dreams in a trance like the shamans of old. To have an aesthetic is already an ideological decision. There is no right-wing art. Even the work that attempted to be that, Pound, Dali, Marinetti, was ignored by the right and then co-opted with redactions by the left. No matter how I try to isolate myself, there you are, looking over my shoulder. Who is a master of language? It's like saying, I can swim, therefore I'm master of the ocean. The waves move at my will. Is a professional writer one who writes for money or one who professes to? For what will I exchange this? What will you pay? Could the prayer be made neither in speech nor writing nor even language, but in some other signifying system? Hieroglyphs, perhaps? Images? A rebus? Or in music? Or perhaps in money? A poem in money. If I point to the mirror on the wall and say, Me, I speak truly. And if I break out the mirror and repeat the gesture to the empty frame, I again speak truly. Where it was, I must come to be. Poet tells me, when I'm writing, I try not to read anyone else so as not to corrupt my point of view. A novelist tells me, if I read for three hours, I feel guilty because I think that's time I should have spent writing. The MFA fantasy is the same as the capitalist fantasy. If you want to speak truth... Say you lie. 
The woman walking in front of me turns around, sensing my eyes on her. We are all together. We all sense together in the single network of desire. The fact that we can ask the meaning of meaning means there is none. Nice. Nice. I like that, yeah. That's about a third of it, I guess. Yeah, I was following along here on on the... uh, It's a nice little... I was skipping around. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice little... So that's going to be a chap? I'm not sure. Not sure yet? Do something like um. So so you have this uh you have this other little offering called surrealism. We didn't even talk about that yet. But you're but you're getting that. But you're getting that. This is now happening in Spanish. Yeah yeah. So when we were in Montevideo, I um, Enrique uh, Salinas um, translated a, a a couple of my poems. Um, basically on the spot on stage so that I could read them in English and then, yeah, then he read them in, in Spanish. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I gave him this book in exchange. And then when I got back here, he sent me a translation almost immediately. And, um, then I sent it to Peter Thompson and asked him to check the translation. And he basically, uh, rewrote it I think I actually haven't seen his rewrite yet but anyway so I'm going to release it in bilingual surrealism uh, surrealismo great nice nice it's um it's a little chapbook of 29 poems Enrique asked me what the significance of the 29 is and I'll I told him but he didn't understand because he doesn't know Jack Spicer it was based on Jack Spicer's textbook of poetry, and <clears throat> I'm not, I don't know how to say how it's based on. It's not a, not a critique. It's not a um, <clears throat> not exactly a homage. It's just kind of a riff on it. But um, it's kind of. Uh, It was fun. It was fun to write. I'll read a few of them. Just kind of at random. So there's like, um, the conversation with Spicer, and then it also develops with a conversation with uh, some other poets, local poets who will, uh, probably should remain nameless here, but, um, Uh, so I'll start with 14. The city is as unavoidable as grit under our souls and money to be made. Great rings of keys to carry around the municipal trust. Slums form into groups when one wants a poem, thank a cop. Trust the trustees to police the language to be a faithful copy. 15. The city is a church. Here are the people. We worship at the bar. We witness at the bar. We're pissed off at each other for fucking up the church. 
for fucking up the city. But the city in that sense is as far from me and you as Dante Street from Arato farther. The city we create in our fury, a place to be exiled, a mirror. 16. If only we could make an alliance with the dead. They could help us magic the whole thing. Help us build and mess up, cause and be caused. All the pieces would fall into place. All the places would be surreal. But the dead are all caught up, caught up in their business. 20. That John Doe of California punk is the same John Doe that's in the crowd. Growing old in rock and roll is not the same as growing old in funk or turning 60 in punk. The sulfurous heat of it, washed out moon of the city, surreal but not funny. 21. Paste the past into Twitter. Every mark of punctuation, every empty space counts. You're pathological for pasts that go nowhere. Like the city emerging from its path. Nowhere is the new way past that future where we idyllically fish. 22. All that lovely licking, but stamps are no longer necessary. After a while, the people in the city the people in the bars forget that they exist. Why, there's no longer a surcharge even for international. Though nations still act just as heartlessly. And to deliver becomes a metaphor. Delivering a metaphor. 23. X marks the liturgy become lethargy. That acidia that hollow metaphor. Acidic John Doe hollers across the past. Rats tweet in Latin. Cougars prowl. Stomachs growl. The rabbit in its hollow means a prayer for the living. So what, why do you call the book Surrealism? <clears throat> Well, it has a kind of surreal quality to it, and I actually picked it up from the textbook of poetry, and um, so it seemed like a... I kind of wanted a, a quasi-technical term, because for me it is a, yeah. kind of about poetry, you know, and um, <clears throat> although it's about a lot of other things, too, yeah. A lot of New Orleans in there for sure. Yeah, there is a lot of New Orleans in and there, and, and I skipped. Orleans, yeah. I skipped the New Orleans, New Orleansy, the the major New Orleansy stuff. I think it's conversations with several poets going on in here, living and dead. Mm. I like the production. This idea that you did this uh, 
you know, it's like, it's like sometimes you just need to do one little, you know, it's a quick read. I sat down and read it in like an hour. You know, I take my time with stuff, so I read it sometimes two or three times, you know. But, um, but like, it's cool to just do like a small little book like this. I like little books. Yeah. yeah. Just like, yeah. it's just like 29 pieces. It's 30 some pages. You know, you, 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 you altered, you, you, you made a book and then you, you altered it. <laughs> yeah, I did a, a little, a weirdly shaped, mass-produced paperback, and then I hand uh, tore the pages. Yeah, I like tore, the, tore the pages, the, the front pages, <laughs> and then the um, uh, did the French fold in the yeah. cover. Yeah. And 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 mysteriously, there's these other two pages in the back that were torn out, but I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what they are. That's, that's the most surreal part of it. I think. <laughs> yeah. it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like that, you know. I like that touch. Too. That's why I left. I could have cleaned that up. It's just gone. No, it's fine. I just, I just noticed these things. It makes yeah. us feel like we're missing something. Well, you know, in the back of Create Space books, they put that they insert that little barcode thing. Barcodes. Yeah, that's what it is. I tore those. Oh, I wish you wouldn't have told us. I figured that's what it is. No, well, if you, if you look in any other Create Space book, well, they're, I mean, they're there. LSI, I mean, they all do it. No, all the uh, all the print on demand people. That was a redacted yeah. poem. So it's kind of no. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's the thirtieth poem that we don't get. It's the one where you really called out Spicer. What you're talking to. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> talking to the dead. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, that's been a cool. That's been a great. I mean, yeah, it's been a great episode. Um, I thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming out and coming on. Um, well, thanks for having me. It's yeah, fun. there's there's a lot. Um, there's I mean, there's always there's always a ton we could talk about. We, I'm sure we could talk for hours upon hours on end about stuff. But we've got third poetry fest coming up this year, which we had a meeting last night about, which is going to be great. Um, I think we're going to have some. It's going to. I like how it's evolving. And uh, it just seems like I don't know. It seems like you're you're hitting a you're putting out more books than ever with your presses. I'm putting out a lot of books. Yeah, I'm putting out a lot of books. Yeah. I've got about eight on my desk at this moment. I think I'll probably launch maybe four at the uh, at fest. Yeah, at the fest. Cool. Um, and your and the reach too. Your international reach is just growing, which is great to see. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of really great submissions uh, from abroad. So many great ones that it's a really tough decision uh, as to what not to take. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, they're really good. Is it mostly? Well, the, are you have you done anything that's because Pete's done some French translations, right? And, oh yeah, and some Spanish stuff. And is anything else uh, outside of that? Well. Peter Thompson, who's my, um, sort of my, well, he's my second, he's my editorial board. Yeah. Uh, and also my translation expert and, um, he's expert in, in romance languages and, um, he's just fabulous. I couldn't do it without him. But anyway, he's, his specialty is North African Francophone literature. Um, Nabil Fares, uh, we've done two of his books, um, Exile Women's Turn is just now launching, it's a posthumous book, Fares died, um, 
two years ago. And they were they were working on the translation together at the time he died. Oh, and wow. um but it's a really beautiful book. Um and doing a book of poems by Muhammad Loakira, another one translated by uh by Peter. And um these are all um I believe Loakira is is Moroccan, French speaking Moroccan. Faris lived in Paris, but he's from Algeria. And uh, it's, you know, I, th I think that like North African literature is like probably the epicenter of creative production right now. I just see so much great stuff coming out of there. I mean, it's, it's all just, uh, just fabulous. Yusuf, uh, Elalami, whose Nomad Love, I did a novel I did a couple of years ago. And then I'm getting all this great South American stuff, too. I'm uh, I this book by uh, Jaime Luis Huinun, a uh, Chilean Mapuche writer. Really, uh, really fascinating. Fascinating work. It's called Fanon City Mu. Mu being a, a Mapuche uh, preposition meaning in, so it means in Fanon City. But he he mixes up um, Spanish and Mapuche and, and English in the original, so it's kind of interesting to translate. Translated by Thomas Roth. So Mapuche is a they're the uh, basically the indigenous peoples of. Uh, Chile. Chile. Yeah. Okay. And they and the language is um I don't I actually don't know like the history of the language like certainly not Indo-European but um I I don't know if it's related to the other indigenous languages in that area I don't know. Okay. Yeah. And there was another connection that you uh yeah, so I just got this book. I just signed uh, a book by uh, Mario Santiago Papasquiaro. Papasquiaro is um, the model of the character uh, Ulysses Lyra in uh, Bolaño's Savage Detectives. And he and uh, Papasquiaro and Bolaño were like the, the co-creators of infrarealism. And this stuff is just wild and uh, and beautiful. So maybe you can tell us about some of those on a on a future Six Poets episode too. Yeah, sure. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Bill, thank you for joining us yet again. Yeah, had a good time. Magos, you have anything to add before we? No, close I just this I just you here? know I'm just. Uh... I got my mind, I got my, you know, I'm just like thinking about Poetry Fest this year. I'm thinking about uh, Mundial Poetico 2018, you know. I, I, I don't know. I'm just like, uh, I'm excited. Um, As you're saving your Ziller Tall labels, they're just littered <laughs> across the... <laughs> I'm excited for poetry these days. I'm, 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 ba I'm, I'm, I'm back excited and uh, zealot uh, for poetry these days. So I try to get, you know, try to... Yeah, it's been a while since you were... Uh, kick some stuff yeah. up, yeah. 
I just read, I'm, I'm ready to finally put out some books and finally like do some things. And I, mm-hmm. I think I kind of put all that on the side for other ventures and I'm, I'm, I need to carve out time. And, and I think going to Uruguay and having that experience is like really like, uh, doing what I hoped it would do. Which yeah. Is, which is like, stir me up. And it, it gets the blood flowing. Yeah. It does. For sure. Smoking this tobacco and drinking yeah, their mate yeah. and eating their candies. And- right. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a table full of souvenirs from Montevideo. This was the coolest thing. I didn't and- quite talk about it last time, but this is like the coolest. Like I went into the shopping mall. Oh, you got a, you got a mate gourd. Yeah, check yeah. that out. Yeah. Pretty cool leather uh-huh. handmade thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was when the- got that when the guy told me to take off my hat in the shopping mall. Well, you're like <laughs> resisting my my... Closure of effort the to find a place where when I edit this, I can actually end the episode. <laughs> I know that's a good spot, right? Stop. Yeah. <laughs>